Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What if you knew you had less than 24 hours to live? Or in Jesus' case, you knew there was a warrant out for your arrest, in a matter of hours, there would be kangaroo courts 
and false accusations made and the death sentence placed upon you and you would be tortured and executed in less than 24 hours. What would you do in your final hours? In Christ's case, he brought those closest to him together in privacy. He had already spoken to the crowds enough and he was going to pour out truth to these guys, his final words, truth they needed to hear and truth he wanted to share. Such is the case of what happened in this text today. Verse 1 said that Jesus knew his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I think a towel is a symbol of the Christian faith. I know the cross is a symbol of the Christian faith. You know, the symbol of our nation is our flag. We pledge allegiance to it every day at school and at public meetings. And the bald eagle. So we have here American flag and the bald eagle replica above it, symbols of our nation. We have here the cross and a towel. I know there's a Christian flag, but that, that flag is so impractical, you can't do anything with it. A towel is very practical. It's made for serving. It's made for working. It's made for wiping sweat from tired people. It's made to dry the wet feet of those who have had them washed. It's a tool of a servant. That's a business idea for somebody. I don't know. I wouldn't invest a lot of money in it first, but a flagpole with a towel hanging on it. Maybe a cross at the top could help you sell it. Uh, I'd buy one. Symbol of our faith. Christ used it in his final object lesson with his disciples. The context here, as related by Luke, was there had been a discussion in the room. This is the Last Supper, the night he's going to be arrested. At that final meal together, the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And I don't think they would do that after having their foot washed by Jesus. That would be humbling. So maybe he interrupted them with this act. I'm not sure. But I know it was a humbling experience to have the master become their servant. He is the master servant. Who knows that? He knows how to serve, and he's a master who serves. And so back to verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. I don't know about the rest of you losers in this room, but... This is the Messiah. Remember my revelation in Matthew 16? He ain't touching my feet. And you know, in the scenario, they probably should have already washed Jesus' feet. But apparently nobody did it. 
in their eagerness to be competitive, wanting to have positions of power in his kingdom, still thinking he was about politics, you know, they wanted to be the prime minister or the ambassador to the UN or something great, when his kingdom is about servanthood. And so he's impressing this lesson to them. You shall never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now Christ often does a play on words. So Peter was clean. The disciples were clean. They had bathed that day. But their feet, having walked the dusty streets of Jerusalem, they got dirty. So they didn't need a full bath. They just needed a foot washing. So he said, you're clean already, but not all of you. At the same time, he's saying something else. You guys are clean, but not all of you. Look at the next verse. Verse 11, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And thus, the verse was born behind foot washing services. But if you think this is a scripture that is obeyed by having a foot washing service at your New Year's Eve tradition, or whenever a church would do it, and you're obeying this verse, you're missing the point. The point is to serve the needs that are around you. And the needs in that day, without sock factories, you know the benefit of sock factories is wonderful. Without sock factories and without good shoes, you would have these sandals and the dusty streets would get dirty. They tracked dirt in the house. The smelly feet during a meal could interrupt things. There was livestock that ran on those roads. Washing someone's feet was a blessing. You could say, well, leave your shoes at the door. Yes, but their feet would often get soiled as well. And so if someone came to your home, it was customary to give them a basin of water so that they could wash their feet. Kind of like a format here, wipe your, your feet off. Or if you had a servant, you'd have the servant wash their feet. But it was certainly a humbling thing, so a host would never wash the feet of his guests. But here, Christ is the host of the Last Supper, washing the feet of the disciples. He could have resented it, but he did it, having loved them to the end. Remember verse 1? He loved them to the very end. He loved them till he died. He loved them persistently and willingly. He didn't thank you much of ungrateful, inbred ingrats. Look at what I'm doing for you. You need to do the same. No, he loved them and said, you guys need to do the same. You need to love and serve each other. And so I'm not speaking against churches having foot washing services. If your church does, you need to announce it in advance because you'll make your American members very angry because they'd like to wash their feet before they go to the foot washing service. The point isn't washing the feet, even though it is a very humbling thing, and you may have had some great spiritual experiences in washing feet. I do not want to make fun of that. But the point is, is that's all you do is symbolic acts. You're missing Christ's point. The point is to serve people at their point of need, to the point of humbling yourself and being a servant. 
Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. In other words, a master is greater than a servant. But if the master has washed his servant's feet, what do you think the servants ought to do? Well, it'd be scrubbing feet, right? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Notice that, verse 17, the word know is there and the word do. And between the two is the word blessed. Some translations say happy. If you know these things and you do them, you'll be happy. Knowledge is not a substitute for obedience. Just because you know something, beware of just going to Bible studies and learning a bunch of stuff. If you're not walking in obedience, that stuff you're learning is just going to condemn you. You're going to get weary of learning things. You're going to get tired of it. But I tell you what, joy comes on the other side of obedience. Obedience may not be easy. It may be tough. But the other side of it is joy. For the joy set before him, Hebrews 12 says, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father, and joy was on the other side of that. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So if you know these things, it's important to know. Knowledge is important. But just to know them is not the end of the thing. Well, I memorized 49 scriptures. Well, great. We'll give you a badge. Now let's start obeying some of them. So it's not just the knowing of the word or the chanting of the word. It's obedience of the word. The word is full of promises to claim and receive, but also full of instructions to obey. If you tell your child, clean your room, and you go in there and check on the room, have you cleaned your room? No, but I have studied and gone to my dictionary and defined every word in that statement that you made. And I really understand what you meant by cleaning your room. I'm a scholar. You should congratulate me. That's disobedience. That's disobedience. And that too often is American Christianity. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Italics is used for the word he. It's not there in the original. I'm telling you ahead of time that the fulfillment of this prophecy is going to happen so that you may believe that I am. You may know who I am. You may believe that I am the great I am. This is another one of the I am statements in the scriptures. Look at Psalm 41.9. That's what he's quoting. I'll read it to you right quick. Psalms right smack dab in the middle of your Bible. So you just close your Bible, open it to the middle. You're in Psalms. Look for chapter 41, verse 9. 
even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted. So Judas was Christ's friend, and Judas was Christ's trusted friend. He trusted him with a money bag. He didn't trust Peter with it. He didn't trust John with it. He trusted Judas. So he was his familiar friend. He was close to him. And his trusted friend, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, in eating Christ's bread, obviously we know he was there in the feeding of the 5,000. He helped multiply the bread. But at this meal, we won't look at it this Sunday, Christ dips bread in the food and gives it to Judas, which was a custom known to show honor to a guest. If you understand how they ate in those days in the Middle East, they have bread that's a lot like tortilla. It can be unleavened and not hard like those crackers that's, that matzah you buy. It's fresh. When, when matzah comes right out of the oven, it's not brittle like it gets when it dries out. So they'll wrap that around food and give it to the guest. Judas was the guest of honor at the Last Supper because he was sitting by the host. And who knows, he may have been the first one who got his feet washed. So the very feet that Jesus washed were about to go out and betray him. So my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. What is this lifting up the heel against him? Well, in Texas, we know what it means when somebody kicks up their heels or running off or being goofy or being silly. But to lift up your heel against someone was an insult. In those days, you didn't show someone the bottom of your shoe. It is culturally in the East viewed as insulting for someone to look at the bottom of your shoe. When that Iraqi threw his shoe at our president, that was much more than him wanting to hit George Bush or interrupt the thing and get himself arrested, become famous. That was an insult. So even though our president ducked, you missed, I don't know what he said, the point was made. I resent you. I am showing you great disrespect. Judas not only showed Christ betrayal, he totally disrespected him. Interrupted his time of prayer later. Kissed him while doing it. Revealed Christ's identity for a fee. This is very disrespectful. And yet he's a guest of honor as Christ is loving his disciples to the very end. Judas is one of them. Pretty heavy, isn't it? The verse I'd like to key in on Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I'd like to speak to you this morning on the subject, Jesus is our example. Can we say that? Let's pray. Lord, I know that you're our example. I pray, Lord, that we uh, would glean truths that we need to walk in your steps in ways we've not walked before. In Jesus' name, let the adventure begin. Amen. He is the ultimate example. He is the one to whom we all revere 
and we sing songs like, oh, I want to be like Jesus in my heart, in my heart. I want to be like Jesus in my heart. In my heart, deep in my heart. Oh, I want to be like Jesus in my heart. Well, today we're going to show you how. It's all about obedience, but it's more about being positioned. It's about a frame of mind. It's about being ready. You know, if you're running in a sprint and you put your feet in the starting blocks, how you start determines how you finish. So we're going to hit at how to start from more than one way because as American Christians, we're really good at dodging things. And so today we hope that all the dodgers will get trapped. How to follow Christ's example. Number one, believe you are called to his mission. Not your mission, his mission. He's called you. Oh, I'm not part of the five-fold ministry. I'm just called to be a partner. Let me disarm the devil. And I'm talking about the devil, not any human being. The fivefold ministry, that phrase is not in the Bible. Let me clarify how it came to be. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says that Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to people. And we know when he ascended, he sent back the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And Ephesians 4 goes on to say that he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. Lowercase, no capitals. These are not positions, they are functions. And here's their function. For the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? They're people that have been filled with the Spirit, people that receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So why is Jesus giving gifts? To continue his ministry. Why there are apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers? To equip the saints for work of ministry. It's the sevenfold ministry of Jesus. Sevenfold, yes. You got Jesus, whose ministry is being begun. You got the apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the evangelist, the teachers. The saints. So don't hide behind not being in what's commonly called the fivefold ministry anymore. We are all a part of the sevenfold ministry, and we are called to his mission. We are called to continue his ministry. If you want to know what that ministry is, read Isaiah 61. It's not yet been fulfilled. We are part of fulfilling that. Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father. His mission included going to the cross. Number two, accept all your God-given assignment. Your assignment should you accept it, is not a menu of pick and choose. Well, I'll choose the 9 a.m., but not the 10.30 or the 10.30, not the 9 a.m. I'll choose Granberry, but not Alaska. God has an assignment for you that's unique. Accept it. Tell him, God, I want it all. Your God-given assignment. Now, beware of people that want to give you assignments. You know, God has a plan for your life, but if he doesn't, I do. 
Watch out for that. Verse 1 goes on and says that having loved his own who were in the world, that was his assignment, and he loved them, even though they were going to abandon him, betray him, and deny him. He loved them. Number three, surrender to the Lord Jesus completely. He loved them to the end. It's a complete and total surrender. He loved them to the end. What is love? Love is a commitment for life. We hear about it on the radio all the time, but we live in such a world with so little love that lasts. There's couples bailing out on each other all the time for reasons that are not biblical. There are some biblical reasons for splitting up, but they're just like three or four of them. That's it. But the reasons given by so many is, well, we just don't love each other anymore. Why not? What if as parents we did that? You know, that teenager is irritating me long enough, I'm just not going to love him anymore. Why is your kid running the streets? Oh, I don't love her anymore. We'd say, what? Love doesn't work like that. Love is a commitment. Yeah, but for me to love, I have to be in love. So we're going to split up because I'm not in love anymore. I understand about being in love. It's great when you feel it, not so great when you don't. But love is a commitment, whether you feel it or you don't. Being in love is like the waves of the sea. It comes and it goes. And if you're going to have a successful marriage, you enjoy the being in love when it, when it comes. But you stick with it when it goes. Just like a surfer who rides the waves, when the wave's gone, you get on your knees and you go for another one. So it's the ebb and flow of being in love that makes marriage fun, but it's loving to the end that makes marriage last. It's like life from peak to peak. Mountaintop to mountaintop, there's valleys in the middle. When you're in the valley, remember the mountaintops. They'll carry you through. When Yvette and I are having what you call intense fellowship, I remember things like the night I got hit with a kidney stone attack, pain like I've never had, and she drove me to the emergency room. And while I'm on my knees holding onto the chair, doing everything I can to keep from rolling around the floor, she didn't distance herself and go out in the parking lot and said there was a weirdo in there. No, she stayed right there by me and leaned over in my ear and read the Psalms to me And the word of God would bring relief. I know the billboard says 21 minutes, but that night it wasn't 21 minutes in that waiting room. This is before that billboard. Finally, I got a morphine shot and I passed that thing. But in the meantime, it was my wife entering into my suffering as best she could, being close to me, serving me, and reading me the Bible. So that when I'm not feeling it, I remember she's a keeper. When you're in the valley, know that another mountain's coming. Amen? It's good. Good stuff. 
Love to the end. Now, aren't these three things basically saying the same thing? Yeah, believe, you're called to his mission, accept all your God-given assignment, surrender the Lord completely. Yes. These things are not a recipe for following Jesus' example. They're just something to get us off dead center and get us moving. One of these is going to be a key that will change somebody's life. Number four, place your entire life in Christ's hand. From this day forward, Lord, my life is yours. Take my hands off of it. What do you want me to do? If it's Alaska, I'll do it. I just have to know. You have to confirm some things to me. Don't just run to Alaska because somebody said, thus saith the Lord. You know, the voice of God is like a rainbow. There's different colors, many phases. And the bigger the decision, the more radical the change, the more confirmation you need, the more colors of the voice of God to have confirmed that. What are those colors? There's audible voice. God can speak by an audible voice. But if you're hearing audible voices, you better heed it because it's serious business. There's the inward witness. He speaks to your heart. There's the scriptures that often confirm what he says or is not saying. There's prophecy. There's wisdom that could come to you even from an unbeliever or in Balaam's case from a donkey. Or in Peter's case, a rooster. There are circumstances, not that we should be led by circumstances, but sometimes circumstances speak. Let's say you think you heard an audible voice that says, sing and make an album. But the circumstances are, you can't carry a tune in the bucket. So either you didn't hear a voice or you need to take some voice lessons first before you make the album. But give him your life and be willing to do whatever he leads you to do. Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew everything was in his hands. He could have called legions of angels to set him free and not died on the cross for this bunch of ingrates. But he gave that authority back to the Father and surrendered his will. If we're going to follow his example, we've got to give up all our power and all our position and give it to him. Number five, know the Lord is your total source. Jesus knew that he had come from God. God was his source. That's where he came from. Know that your life came from God and your new life comes from him. And your future life as you obey his will will come from him. This is why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about anything. Why? Worry will keep us from allowing God to be our source. Worrying about tomorrow doesn't mean we're to be irresponsible. Obviously, we're to be responsible and prepare for whatever we're able to prepare for. But to worry, sit up at night and have anxiety, that's not God's will. Number six, be assured your future is secure. Can we say secure? Your future is secure. Jesus knew he was going to God. The joy set before him that enabled him to endure the cross, he knew that joy was real. And I don't care what you're going through, the story's not over for you. There is a mission God has called you to, and there is success in fulfilling that mission if you remain faithful. One day you will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Be assured of that. Number seven, start to serve needs around you. Jesus poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas. 
What was the needs around him at that moment? Ultimately, the needs were the sins of the world that he was going to die for, but temporarily they were going to have a meal and there were some people with smelly feet in the room. So he was blessing others. What does God want me to do? He wants you to serve the needs around you. Well, they're temporal needs. They're not eternal. That's fine. He takes care of temporal needs and eternal needs. Well, God told me what to do one time, and I didn't do it. Well, do it. Well, he hadn't told me anything else to do. Well, he's still waiting on you to do the first thing. The key to obedience is do what God tells you to do, and then do the next thing he tells you to do, and the next thing he tells you to do. And I'm not talking about he's going to speak to you in an audible voice and tell you, wear blue jeans today. No, he's just going to impress you, cause your eyes to see an opportunity to serve somebody. Number eight, realize you will be misunderstood. Peter misunderstood him, didn't want him to do it. People will misunderstand you. They will question your motives. They'll put you down because you are not Jesus is true. Because you have been prideful. Just realize that. It's part of the package. It's part of the deal. Don't go into shock. Oh, my goodness, people aren't happy. The last thing I'll ever do for somebody, I'll do that. Number nine, let the Lord wash you when needed. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, as people, we need to be what we call, it's a strange term, washed in the blood. An unchurched, unbelieving person, you don't want to ask them, have you been washed in the blood? That will freak them out. But basically it's a term that means the work Jesus did on the cross was for our sins, and we receive the benefits of that by believing that he died for my sins and asking him to forgive me of those sins and to make me new, give me a clean start. That's what being washed in the blood is. So if you have become, that's the way we become God's born-again child. That's how we enter into his adoption covenant, through faith in what was done for us on the cross. If you've done that, but you've fallen away or you've messed up, you don't have to redo all that again. Christ isn't going to come back and die for your sins again. You just got your feet dirty. Time to get them washed. Come back to the cross and ask him, Lord, forgive me. I believe you died for my sins, and I have gotten off track. I have gotten dirty. I have stumbled and fell. Help me get back up and follow you again. Number 10, anticipate some great disappointment. Judas was a great disappointment. He allowed the devil to put it in his heart to betray Jesus. He was going to lift up his heel against the master and insult him. Even before he did it, Christ was troubled in spirit. Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And people sitting around the table were asking, Lord, is it I? At that point, Judas could have repented. I mean, it was an act of love to predict his disobedience in his presence without embarrassing him. I mean, it wasn't much clearer about what he was, was going to do, and he knew he was one in the room. But he was so hard, so greedy, he resisted the opportunity to repent. Well, didn't it have to happen? No, his enemies were out to get him. So they get him some other way. Judas didn't have to be the guy. So Christ loved his disciples to the very end. And Judas wasn't the only one that disappointed him. 
Peter declared, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus made another prediction. Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Did Peter fall on his face and say, oh God, forgive me for being so prideful? No, he didn't. And the prophecy came to pass. Now, I grew up as a little boy thinking roosters crowed at the sun as it rose up and thought this statement meant Peter, before sunup, you're going to deny me. Does anybody have experience with chickens? When I was a little boy, we moved to a mission base in Africa, and the chickens didn't stay in a coop because then the leopards would know where the chickens were. They'd break in that coop and eat them all. So the chickens would fly up in the trees at night. And they stayed around the house. They didn't wander off in the jungle. They knew there were predators out there. They would fly up in the trees at night. And I've heard roosters crow all night long. They're not crowing for the sun to come up. They're crowing to get attention from some of the sisters. If you get my drift. Jesus wasn't telling Peter, you're going to deny me by sunup. No, Peter, it's not going to be long. You're going to hear a rooster crow, and you're going to have denied me three times. The next three chapters are all one big monologue by Christ before he got arrested and chapter 17 is his prayer and and then Peter's denying that he even knew him and so it wasn't long his love was shallow and so this was very disappointing should you choose to accept this mission you're going to be disappointed people are going to let you down but not everybody and not the master we get to enter into the fellowship with the sufferings when that kind of thing happens. Now, here's some good news. Remember, it will be worth it all. I remember an old song we sang when I was a kid. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face all sorrow will erase. We will have run the race when we see Christ. It will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Now, chapters and verses were not put there by the writers of the scriptures. John didn't write 14 and then start writing these verses. Chapters and verses were put there so we can more easily find key statements. Chapter 13 ends with Jesus predicting Peter's denial. You'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. His next statement was, let not your heart be troubled. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. You think you're going to die for me? Before the rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. There may be somebody here that one time in your life you were fully committed to the mission God had called you to. But some temptations arose, some trials caused you to crater, and some decisions were made, and now you have the after effects. You think God was shocked by that? Read Isaiah 53 again. Christ bore our shame, not just our sins, but our shame. It's in there more than once. To lift the shame off of you. Here Peter is, having heard something that could cover him in shame, and the living word of Christ says, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back so that you can be there with me. That's life. So, so Peter had a rough start. When Jesus arose from the dead, he sent greeting to his disciples and to Peter. There's a message in that. You are called to a mission and God hasn't changed. His callings are without repentance. There might be some detours, but it's get back up on that horse and ride. Jesus is our example. And the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so the apostles are our foundation. And if there was restoration for them, there's restoration for us. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, let your word sink in deep and bear fruit where is needed the most. Help us to believe that we are called to your mission and to accept all of our God-given assignment and to surrender to you, Lord Jesus, completely. Help us to place our entire life in your hands and know you and make you our total source. Help us to entrust our future to you and be assured that it is secure. And help us today to start to serve the needs that are around us. Give us eyes to see how to serve you so that one day we'll hear you say, I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you fed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you stopped by and saw me. Show us what to do. And help us, Lord, to be prepared for misunderstanding and disappointment. And this morning, Lord, we ask you to wash us where it is needed and help us to remember that it will be worth it all and is worth it all.